I'll read 1 Peter 1, 13-25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Great. Thanks, Pete. Well, welcome, everyone. Woohoo! Big Thanksgiving cheer. Yeah. Some of you are like, just get this over with. I've got turkey on the way. A um, little tryptophan uh, coma this afternoon. Um, so glad that you're here. Yeah, exactly. This is great. So glad that you're here this morning uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. I think uh, especially as Christians, we have so much to be thankful for. So I hope you're able to just even in the, in the weekend be reminded of the goodness of the grace of Jesus. As Pete said, that's what we're all about. Uh, we want to remind you this morning. Um, this isn't a particularly uh, Thanksgiving-focused uh, message. So actually, in some ways, it's kind of a hard word. So if you're a, a visitor, I just want you to know there's a setting to um, our, our message this morning, and that, that setting will, will just hopefully allow you to kind of understand uh, what we're about. But I, I, I feel like I need some prayer this morning. I feel like we need some prayer because um, we need to hear from the Lord this morning. So if, if you'd bow with me and pray. Jesus, we thank you again for your goodness. We thank you that... Um, you came to this earth to die on a cross for our sins in our place and give us new life here on earth and eternally. And Jesus, that news, I pray that somehow, again, no matter how many times we've heard it, Jesus, that this will seem and feel like great news to us. And we will be able to celebrate on Thanksgiving weekend um, the goodness of everything we have received in you. Sometimes we, we focus on the things you have given to us besides our salvation. And so for a little while, Jesus, would you help us to remember and, and be thankful for and consider um, just the greatness of the gospel this morning. I pray that you'd be with my words. I pray that you would be with our hearts, that we can hear these words, we can be encouraged, and at the same time we can have courage to then act on what we know. Jesus, we ask all these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. Amen. 
I don't know if I mentioned my name. My name is Trev, by the way. Uh, and I am the pastor here at Urban Grace, the regular preacher. And we're in a series called Tested. It's based upon First Peter. It's based upon this idea that First uh, Peter is writing to a number of Christians. He has, actually hasn't met them. That's what scholars would say. He hasn't met these people, but he really seems to know and understand uh, what they are facing. They are facing likely persecution and execution. Uh, they are facing a number of difficult uh, scenarios in life that they're suffering for as a direct result of their faith in Jesus Christ. That seems a little bit removed often from where we are. We don't really receive much persecution necessarily for what we believe, except for maybe a few people say a few nasty things at work. Maybe some of us perhaps uh, don't get the jobs we'd like because... They know we're Christians and they know what would happen if a Christian took that position or whatever. So there is some sort of persecution that we generally face, but we don't quite have the same that we would find in the, in the book of First Peter. But that's okay, because the principles and the way that these believers are called to respond to their testing in First Peter are the same ways that we need to respond to the same amount of suffering. And this whole idea of being tested, I want to continue to uh, let us, as a, a church family, marinate in this idea. What's strange is, as we, we've already preached, we've only gone twice through these, these things in testing. And it feels like Jesus is actually, once again, using this book not just to teach us about testing, but it's happening while we're being tested. Many of you have already told stories of times... Uh, things that are happening right now in your life are like, right now I really feel like I'm being tested. And this is just like Jesus, isn't it? We make all these plans, and yet he has some other plans, and he wants to teach us some other things. But I want us to think again about this idea of testing, about finding out what is really there. Sometimes when we get tested, uh, we say these testings drive away our faith. Actually, they can do both. Actually, oftentimes what we see is when we're tested, when we face trials, when we face difficulties, it doesn't, it doesn't decide what's there. It just reveals what's already there. I'll give you a good example of this. Okay, my little brother, he owns his own bike shop. So he cut me a deal on a mountain bike. He's a good brother, right? He cut me a great deal on a mountain bike, way more expensive than I could afford. Um, I'm still paying him back a year later. Okay, that's how good this bike is way beyond what i could purchase i'm thinking i get this great bike it's i mean it's awesome it's red like what could be wrong with a red bike right it's red and white it looks really cool never heard of the company has all these cool shocks on it everything like this so he says it's not a bad bike it's kind of the lower end i'm like what are you talking about lower end i mean i can't i still can't afford this he says well let's test it out on the hill sure enough we go out on the on the trail Okay, and we're riding down, and I'm like, this is a pretty good bike, as I'm testing it, really good bike. Shocks are, it jerks a little bit, you know, and it kind of rattles a little bit, and he says, hey, try my bike, test my bike, and so I did, which was a huge mistake. I should have never rode his bike down, because now my bike feels like a piece of crap. Okay, so now the $3,000 bike is the amazing bike. Do you know how I found this out, friends? How? I tested both bikes. I didn't find out what I had in a mountain bike until I tested on trail. I mean, I'm driving around with Dinah and Eve on the bike. I'm like, look at this. I can just go off the curve and, 
curb, and I don't, you know, just kind of drop down and little, little shocks. This is great. But when I tested it on a real mountain, I realized, yeah, there are some deficiencies in this bike. I could use a better bike. I think this is what happens with our faith, is sometimes we believe and we tell people, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, I have, I have, that's my faith that carries me through. And then something hits and we're like, what? What happened to my faith? Nothing happened to your faith, by the way. That test, that trial, likely just revealed where your faith was actually at. It's surprising, isn't it? To some of us, we think we have this great, enormous faith that can literally move mountains. They're like Banff National Park. They better watch out because my faith could move that whole thing. And then something happens and we're like, what happened, God? What are you doing? You know, we, we look at other people and we're like, you just need more faith. And then something happens and we realize maybe this is... Maybe this is much tougher than I thought. Maybe my faith wasn't as strong as I thought. Maybe I didn't know as well as I thought of what I believed. And so in this way, Peter, First Peter is very good for us because what it's doing is there's a lot of people at Urban Grace and there's a lot of people, I don't, you know, I, yeah, you, you can tell who a Christian is by their fruit, but I don't believe anymore just when someone says, I am a Christian because, you know, 25 years ago I raised my hand at a Billy Graham, you guys don't even know who Billy Graham is, but at a Billy Graham conference, and that makes me a Christian, I say, well, we'll see when you face tests. And as we began to plant the church, we began to see those whose faith was real and those whose faith was not that real. I'm not going to name any names, of course, but I know who the names are. It was very obvious after a while. Some really had faith that Jesus was calling us to do this. Some did not. Most of those people aren't here. Because that's how you find out what you have. Before we... uh, we, we put this kind of slogan in. Turns out Tim Keller, who wrote his latest book, came out with it later. So we're sure Tim Keller was in uh, the house and he stole it. Tim Keller, for those of you who don't know, is a very famous New York Times bestselling author who has, you know, changed a lot of how we thought. So uh, someday he'll give me credit for uh, the little phrase there. But on the back of his book, he literally wrote this. This is not, this is not, not making this up. You don't know who you really are until you're tested. That's what he wrote on this book, brand new book on suffering. You don't know who you really are. First Peter reminds us of who we really are. It says, if you really say you're a Christian, if you really have faith, this is who you are. This is how you know who you are. If you say you are a Christian, you are called to these things. And if you are not doing these things, if you're not paying attention to these things, he doesn't even finish the sentence almost. He kind of says, then... Are you really? He doesn't say, you know, there's a bunch of people that aren't Christians in my church. He just says, if you're a Christian, then you will act this way. Then you will think this way. Then you will love this way. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that there's three things. Jesus calls us to active holiness. Jesus calls us to a family and a father. And Jesus calls us to intense love. So let's go through the first one. Jesus calls us to active holiness. This is a great part of the text. It starts off, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, you've got to find out what it's there for. It's not a joke. That's real. You have to find what it's there for. 
So if there's a therefore, it basically says, this is your hope. If you are a Christian, you are born into a living hope, a forward-looking hope, a hope that rests on Jesus Christ. That's very important to us here. We don't just say God, because God, when you say that word, even if you use a capital G, that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Saying I believe in God in our context, in our culture, is not controversial at all. Saying we believe that Jesus is that God is. There's a lot of people that right there, that is what they disagree with. Oh, I believe in God. I just don't believe that Jesus is God. That's fine. We'll talk. But a Christian believes that Jesus is God. If you're stumbling on that one, I would say don't bother trying to find out anything else about the Christian faith until you believe that. And here at Urban Grace, we will hinge everything that we believe on this very thing. That Jesus is God. He came to this earth as God. He didn't come as a human and become God. He was God and came to earth and became human. It's a very important distinction. And he, is, he has died for us. He has paid the penalty for sin, which means we have to admit, if we're a Christian, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. If you want to get baptized at Urban Grace, and in a couple of weeks, months, we're going to have another baptism service, and you want to proclaim that, I will ask that question of you before we dump you, dunk you in the tank. We might dump you, then we'll dunk you. We will say, do you believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? If you say yes, we continue. Do you believe that that Savior is Jesus Christ who is God? Yes, we will continue. Then we will baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's got to be crystal clear. Because everything else in First Peter will hinge on this. Our eternal life hinges on the fact that Jesus purchased it. So many people already get Christianity mixed up and they think Christianity is about what I don't do. No, Christianity is about what Jesus did. It's very important to us. And therefore, if we believe that, so this prevents anyone from being able to go, well, I will just follow Christianity morally. See the problem with that in the argument in First Peter? He doesn't say, you know what, this is a fairly good way of living. In fact, one of the other biblical authors, Paul, will say it's kind of useless just to live Christianity from the moral perspective. Did you know that? Did you know the Apostle Paul says, if you just think living a good Christian moral life is worthwhile, he would say, you're wasting your time. Find something that's easier to do and a lot more fun. I mean, that's an enormous statement. It's hinging everything on that one thing. So Peter says, therefore, and he calls us to what I call active holiness. Not passive holiness, active holiness. I call it active because too many people think when, I, when we talk about holiness as Christians, we're talking about all the things that we don't do. Now, as Christians, there are things that we don't do. Because there's a pattern laid out for us. But can you imagine if you walked around at your job and told your boss and defined your job description by all the things that you don't do? How impressed would your boss be with you? 
Hey, how's it going? What do you do? Well, let me tell you about what I don't do. Some of you do that and you've lost your job. Right? There are things you don't do. Of course there are. But you don't define yourself by that. You define yourself by what I do do. If you're tweeting that hashtag, those or put a hyphen between those two do's, please. Some of you just got that. That's awesome. You're awake. So Peter says, therefore, preparing your mind for action. Okay? We can't feel the pop of this uh, verse just by that. Okay? Prepare your mind for action sounds pretty decent. Now, here's the actual translation in the Greek. Gird the hips of your mind. I know, self-explanatory, right? Makes sense? Everyone, like, I don't know what that means. Exactly. It's an image that we don't use, and it's an image that doesn't really make sense unless you live in ancient Israel, and you wear, this is like pre-hipster times, so some of you are going to have to put on your, you know, your brain power here, and you've got to imagine that you're wearing this long shirt. We're going to call it a shirt, not a dress, because I don't think they thought of it as a dress. Okay? We might call it a toga. It's a little more manly, Okay? But everyone wore them, so it wasn't that manly. It was a long shirt that sometimes came to your knees and often went to your ankles. That's why when you see stories of Jesus or stories of Moses on video, they're always wearing these long cloaks. Okay? Anyone, ladies, have you ever tried to run in a long dress? What's that like? It's a good time, isn't it? Okay? Fail. That's what that is. Running in a dress. So you can't run in a dress. You can't even walk briskly in a dress. You can't barely, honestly, walk across the street fast in heels in a dress. Some of you have, like, nailed this, and that's great for you. But some of you have YouTubed ladies falling over in a long dress who try to go too fast. Okay, you know where I'm going with this. So what do you need to do if you're going to fight a battle, you're going to run a race, you're just going to play catch with your kids, and you're wearing a long dress? You need to grab the bottom of that dress. It's not very hip, but you need to bring it up and stick it in your belt. Okay? It's like this is very close to rolling up the cuffs on the bottom of your pants. Okay? This is where hipsters first got this idea from. They wanted to go places. And boot cut just trips you up too much. Do you know what that process was called? It was called girding up your loins. It was meaning if you want to get ready to do something, you got, you got to gird it up. you got to gird it up. That's a great bumper sticker, don't you think? I think we'll have those for sale afterwards. Gird it up, baby. So this is what Peter is saying. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have got to gird up the loins of your mind. you got to get ready for work. This phrase was used in Exodus. When God told his people, I'm going to save you, and he's like, I've got this special thing called the Passover. We're going to celebrate the Passover. You're going to kill a lamb. You're going to shed some blood. It's going to symbolize my blood shedding for you. But here's, here's the thing, is you're going to do this on one day, and the next day I'm going to save you. So you're actually, I want you to eat this Passover standing up. To symbolize how fast I'm going to do this. So for 400 years, I have you in slavery, teaching you, disciplining you. But in one day, I'm going to save you. So I'm going to gird it up. Get ready. That's where we find that phrase. 
when the prophet Jeremiah is instructed from, from God to preach the word. And Jeremiah, dude, had the toughest job description of a preacher I've ever seen. 60 years, no converts. How'd you like that gig? Dear Jeremiah, I would like you to preach as hard as you can, as long as you can, and I'm never going to use any, I'm never going to save anyone through that. Love God. Can you imagine getting that letter? This is Jeremiah's deal. So as God, Jeremiah chapter 1, not making this stuff up, guess what God says to Jeremiah? Gird up your loins and get ready to say whatever I tell you to say. You got this image yet in your mind? So when Peter says, get ready, it's actually gird up the loins of your mind. If you think this is a game of just like playing moral stuff, you're wrong. Get ready. I think we've got to get that picture in our heads before we even think about holiness because right here is where so many of you have turned away from Christianity and maybe are just coming back. Many of you love this idea of grace, but actually expressing grace to people is not fun. Have you noticed that? When you say you become a Christian, your life often does not get easier. It gets harder. What you say, what you do, how you think comes under stronger standards than before. I remember talking to a lady, and she goes, oh, I totally agree. When I became a Christian, everyone tells you that, excuse me, in my church, everyone told me your life is going to be awesome. She says, actually, I became a Christian, and everything in my life seems so much harder. So you've got to hear When you become a Christian, if you want to become a Christian, you have to get ready to gird up the loins of your mind. You're going to have a battle on your hands. You're going to be battling a real enemy. His name is Satan. He shows up as a servant, as a serpent in the garden. I love this story. I was sharing this with Eve one morning, and I was like, what's the serpent's name in the garden? She goes, David? I was like, no, 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 that didn't work. It's Satan. (laughs) He might have gone by David for a term, but we know as a Satan, he's a real enemy, and he never leaves people alone. He keeps saying the same thing. Did God really say? Some of you have heard this from your friends, you know. Well, I believe this about God. Did God really say that? That's the, that's the serpent showing up even in some of our friends' conversations. We have a very real enemy in ourselves. We are not innocent from birth. Sesame Street lied to you. If you don't believe that that people are innocent from birth, try raising some. Seriously. It's very, you'll very quickly find out. You do not have to teach them how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to disobey. You don't have to teach them how to take things out of your pockets. They do that pretty naturally. You're going to have to battle this your whole life, so get ready. You're going to have to battle a world that tells you otherwise and says, isn't that way too much work? You Christians, all you can think about is your lifestyle and this. Yes. There's a lot to this. Your culture will likely face you and just tell you you're an idiot. It's already telling us that. 
Christians, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian because then I can't have any more fun. I have heard people say that to me. I don't want to be a Christian in spite of the fact that actually it sounds true. I kind of want it to be true, but it doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me. Yeah. You'll have people pastor you about this your whole life. But you, gird your loins of your mind. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get that down. Figure out what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and reverse engineer from this. Because this at some points is the only thing, the only way when you wake up, you will be able to pursue a holy life. couple things we find out about holiness, and my first point, by the way, is the longest point. I'm not quite there yet to that uh, uh, point, whoever's doing the, the PowerPoint there. But a couple things that we learn about holiness. Holiness, then, defining what does it mean. Holiness is a behavior that comes with believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. By Lord, I mean, like, your superpower, your hero, your best, your identity, everything, your everything. That's what that means. And holiness is the type of behavior that follows the pattern of that Savior and comes from the life and the mouth of that Savior. And so holiness is simply, John Oswald laid it out, he said, holiness is connecting what we believe with what we do. If we believe certain things about God, then it must translate into ways that we act and behave as a result of that belief. That's not an abnormal idea, that's a pretty normal thing. Right? Some of you, when you believe certain things, it just changes your behavior. Some of them are very natural and philosophically very logical. Some are not. But holiness is connecting what we believe with what we do. Do you know that's one of the major reasons why people are turned off of Christians? Some of you have been turned off by Christians. Some of you are turned off right now by Christians because they will not connect what they say to what they do. Does that not drive you crazy when you meet someone like that? Like, we don't have time for these kind of people. Like, if you say, I am a huge Stampeder fan. Do you guys know who the Calgary Stampeders are? Okay. Let's give a little shout out for a 12 and 3. Okay. Calgary Stampeders fan. If you say you're a huge Calgary Stampeders fan, what's a natural behavior that would happen as a result of your, your belief in that? You would go to games. You would watch them. You might wear, you would at least know what's going on. Have you ever met a fan who's like, I am a huge Stampeders fan. Oh, really? When's the last time you've been to a game? Oh, I've never been. Well, when's the last time you watched them on television? Oh, I've actually never seen them on television. Well, do you know any players? Oh, no, I, I, don't, I don't have a clue. Well, what color is their jersey? I don't know, blue? What would you say about... The fact that they call themselves a Stampeder fan. You would call them out pretty quickly and say, hate to break it to you, but that's not really a fan. There's a certain behavior that comes with this. Holiness is a certain behavior laid out in all of Scripture 
that's based upon who God is. Because of what we believe in Jesus Christ, because he says he's his all, we say publicly each week, this is what we're about. Because Jesus died for our sins, we are thankful. So we sing thanksgiving. Because Jesus Christ came and lived our life as an example for us, we we look to him to figure out how to live. Because Jesus was on mission to us and telling us this good news, what do we do? We're on mission to tell as many people as possible. You see how our the, the, the character, who Jesus is, has a direct result on how we act. Secondly, these ways of behaving are based upon the character of God. Already losing my voice here. We're only in the first service. That's a joke, actually. Many people, Christians included, mistakenly think that holiness is a bunch of rules that God thought up to make it really difficult for us. Right? They don't seem to be connected to the character of God at all. But holiness, acting holy, is always connected to the character of God. Thirdly, all Christians need to be holy. I'm a pastor. Some of you know that. But I can't tell you how many times that someone has talked to me, found out I'm a pastor, and think automatically that I am more interested in being holy than anyone else. Oh, you're a pastor? I should stop swearing. I always am confused by that. I said I was a pastor. I didn't say I was God and your judge. Oh, well, I, we can't. I, we're at a wedding one time, and, uh, you know, someone made a, a joke about sex, and someone turned around and said, Oh, the pastor is here. We better not talk about sex. I'm like, I am a man. Why, why would I be less interested in this than you? Because we have this perception that when we talk about holiness, that's for the leaders of the church. That's for the people who are really serious about their faith. That's for the pastors. That's for the, the church planners. No way. Holiness is for every single person who calls themselves a Christian. That's one thing the Bible makes crystal clear. Yes, there is an emphasis on the holiness of the leaders because what happens to the leaders always happens to the people. So leaders have to pay attention. Yes, they do. They have to go first. Yes, they do. Is it more important than everyone else? No, it's not. Fourthly, a Christian's way of behaving should be different from those who do not believe in Jesus. This isn't an exclusive thing. This is a proclamation thing. Notice I didn't say a Christian does different things. Or, or doesn't do certain things. Again, this is the big confusion. You know, so this lady at the, at the wedding is like, you know, obviously the rest of us have sex, but you don't. The rest of us enjoy money, but you don't. No, no, no. No, no, no. A Christian's way of behaving is different, but doesn't necessarily mean you do different things. Sometimes it just means you think differently. I'll give you an example of this. Money. 
Those who do not believe in Jesus and those who do believe in Jesus should both make money. Okay? It's good for a person to get a job. Especially if you're a dude at Urban Grace. We'll come after you. You should get a job. doesn't matter if you don't believe in Jesus or you do. You should get a job. This is just kind of normal. But a Christian thinks differently about their job than someone who's not a Christian. And it happens all the time whether we like to admit it or not. Because our motivations are often very different. As a Christian, we can have a job that is not completely motivated by money. See where everyone gets confused when Christians, non-Christians, that's the only motivation. Why are you in this job? There's no other reason other than money. Well, that's not different. Like I bought coffee from, from a lady at Starbucks this morning. I was like, oh, you have to work a long weekend. She's like, double time. <laughs> that's it. I hate you, but I'm getting paid twice as much, so I'm here. You know, she didn't say that, but my translation, loosely. But that's her motivation for getting up at Thanksgiving. It's not like I have a job, I'd like to help out my boss, I'd like to serve Jesus in this way. No, no, I'm time and a half. I'm getting paid for this. Somebody's making, I'm making more money than I normally do. But a Christian's way of behaving is different. We think differently. We can think differently. We can think differently about money. We can think differently about sex. We can think differently about time. We can think differently about motivation. We can think differently about our Savior. We can think differently about joy and happiness. We can think differently about time management. We can think differently about planning. We can think differently about what we need, materialism. We can think differently about where we live. And so holiness is thinking through these things. So how do we actively pursue the pattern of Jesus? Now we got it. Get to know the story of Jesus. You have to know who Jesus is if you're going to know his pattern. Yes, this does include at times reading your Bible. There are things in here about Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, this book is actually about me. But there are different ways to learn about Jesus. That's why we have conversations about Jesus. This is a convenient plug for city groups. So we can talk about what Jesus is doing, what he's like, where he's been working in our city groups. That's why we want you to join one if you're going to be part of Urban Grace, because we don't think it's simply information. We think it has to translate in something, into something. But I think we also need to get to know our own story. That if we want to follow the pattern of Jesus, first we've got to kind of know what we're like. We've got to take a careful look at, at our pattern. And we've got to figure out that when we get to know Jesus' story and then we get to know our story, we're like, these are not matching up. Jesus' story is this. He's very loving towards these people. I'm not very loving towards people. Something's wrong. Something needs to change. I need to repent, which simply means I need to change direction. And I've got to figure this out so that these two are more in line. Now, will you make a mistake? Yeah, you will. Is there forgiveness for this? Yes. It's rigged right into the gospel message. That's why it's not based upon what you do for God. It's based upon what he did for you. But that doesn't exclude you 
from patterning your life after him and getting back up off the mat and going at it again. And you got to get ready for that. The second thing I see in the text is that Jesus calls us to a father and a family. We're going to get through these faster. Verse 17 says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. There's a ton of things in here that I could go to, but a couple of them are, you're in exile and conduct yourselves with fear and call him a father. Okay, that's the whole thing. Sorry. So I said one of the benefits of being a Christian is that you get to call God the Father, who is Jesus' Father. You get to call Him Dad. He's your real dad. He adopted you. He loves you, which also means He gets to discipline you. Okay, those two, they go together closer than you may think. Some of us love this idea. Some of us have uh, of, a, of a great dad who loves us. Some of us don't love this idea of a dad who disciplines us. Okay? I did not grow up loving my dad's discipline, by the way. I'm with you. I hated it. In those days, you could use a belt. Now you can't, it seems. I reminded my children, this is what my dad used to use, this belt. Be careful. <laughs> Hopefully no social workers were listening. But a loving dad means a disciplining dad. A loving dad means a disciplining dad. You know where this has all been torn up? is the bad dads in our culture who give rotten examples of what dads are. They've ruined everything. Some of you have good dads. I am so thankful for that. You're in the minority. Most of you, man, woman, child, have had a bad dad experience. That's just statistics. You have either had a dad who was, quote-unquote, very loving and did not discipline you at all, which you didn't like when you were 20 and you said, I wish my dad would have disciplined me so I didn't spend all my money so foolishly. I wish he just got this straight in my head. I wish my dad disciplined me so that I didn't mouth off the people at work and realize you can't just say whatever you think at work or you might get punched in the face. I wish my dad would have said, don't say that, you'll get punched in the face. Some of you are in the opposite perspective. You had a dad that he disciplined you, but he did not love you. You heard, I will make you into an awesome person, but I won't have you like me at all. And you won't respect me, and you won't feel that I love you. In fact, I'll never even say it. Some of you this morning have never heard your dad say, I love you. Especially as men. Our culture has screwed this up so badly that men can't even say love to one another without some sort of sexual innuendo being part of it. That's not fair. The Bible doesn't do that. When the Bible says that God loves us, there's not a sexual thing involved in that. This is God our Father. He puts these two things together. He loves you so much. 
He was doing just fine without you, but he decided out of love and compassion to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth as a missionary to live in your place, to die for your sins, to give you eternal life. That's how much he loved you. And some of you right now are feeling the discipline part of God and you're saying, I don't understand this. If God loves me so much, why am I getting disciplined? Actually, it's because he loves you. In fact, the Bible will say, God only disciplines those he loves. I mean, you can translate that how you want to, but basically, some people would even imply that if you don't get disciplined, how do you even know you're loved by God? I mean, I love my children, but they know I will discipline them. Sometimes I just have to say, I will discipline you, and it's like, okay. This is what Peter is saying, conduct yourselves in this healthy fear of who your dad really is in your family. Okay, some of you have had a very unhealthy fear of your dad, right? You're a small kid, you hear dad come home, slam the door, walk across, you're like, oh boy, I'm getting it. You're terrified, and you leave the house, you run away. You pack up your bag and your toy and you run away, right? I'm not, I'm not getting anywhere near my dad. Unhealthy fear. Some of you aren't scared of your dad at all. You're like, Dad's like, I'm going to discipline. You're like, go ahead. I'm not scared. This is God our Father. Healthy fear. You are talking about a dad who loves you. You're also talking about a dad who created the world. You're talking about a dad that can wipe out a nation in one day. You're talking about a dad who, when things got out of hand, decided to flood the earth. We had like 10 neighborhoods flooded, and it changed our whole lives. We serve and have a dad who could wipe out our city by just letting it rain longer. He wouldn't even have to actively do anything besides just let the weather system go out of hand. Now, I think we need this healthy respect for our Father. I think it's okay to sometimes say, you know, I'd really like to sin, but I also know what God could do to me, so maybe I won't. You know, I'd like to sleep around with whoever I want, but God says I can't, so because I know He could do anything He wanted to me, I'll listen to Him on this one. You know, I'd like to spend my money however I like, but honestly, at the end of the day, God can take away my money if He wanted to, so I'll listen to Him. That's what it means to call God your father. If you're going to receive the benefits of being a family, because this is what he does, he welcomes you in. He doesn't base it upon your ethnicity. He doesn't base it upon your past sin. He doesn't base it upon how long you've known. He gives you the same grace no matter what. He gives you that opportunity of being a family, but he also says there's a responsibility in this family. We often say this and talk about this at city groups. Some people love the benefit of the family of Citigroup. They don't love the discipline part of being in that family, of going week after week when we don't feel like, of putting up with the person who asks too many questions or doesn't show up enough or doesn't bring enough food or whatever it is. And we say this in our home a lot. You can't enjoy the benefits of being in the family if you don't accept the responsibility of being in the family. And this is simply... 
Peter reminding his friends, look at you're called to a family, accept the responsibility of the family. Accept God as your father, accept God as your judge, accept God as a loving God, and everything will go okay. Thirdly, Jesus calls us to love passionately and authentically. So Peter reminds Peter reminds his, his believing friends that because of what Jesus has done for them, living with a healthy respect for what God has said, what God can do, love. That's what the text says. I mean, it's a kind of a complicated way of saying it, but having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, see that word, sincere, brotherly love, one, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That brotherly love is this idea of family, brothers and sisters. Okay, because you believe in Jesus Christ, because he has changed your life, because he is your everything, because you have a healthy respect, now, Pursue love. Authentically, pursue it passionately. Notice that Peter says it's a sincere love. Many of us have fallen victim to this idea of an insincere love, right? We've thrown that word around or had that word thrown around a lot. Someone says, I love you. You're like, yeah, whatever. Someone said it to us. They didn't follow through on it. Insincere love. But sometimes I think we love each other insincerely. We love each other when it's convenient, but we don't love each other when it's inconvenient. And I believe that true affection, true authenticity in our love will happen when we don't feel like it, not when we do. When the people are easy to love, it's called a good time. When people are not easy to love, it's called community. I mean, it makes perfect sense if you've got this idea of a family, right? God chose my kids. Yes, I did the things. We did the things that make kids. I get that. Not arguing that. We didn't choose what they would look like. We chose, we simply accepted them as family. And that's how you become one of the people who call the kingdom of God, the Christian life, family. We don't choose you on the basis of how much money you can give to the church, how good you look, how hipster you are, how many field notes you have wrapped around a rubber band. We don't choose you on that basis. You come on the basis of Jesus Christ and we accept you as family. But my question is, as, even as Urban Grace, is that what we as a church would be known for? Would people go, hey, that church plant down in Kensington, you know what's strange about them? They love a lot of people. And you know what? They're real. They're not faking it. When they say they love us, they love us. When we need help, they're there. Again, it's a strong call. I think what, I've, what I really pulled out of the text 
as I studied it, was that this is really where the holiness factor sets in. Some of you think holiness again. We're working hard to correct this idea of holiness. Where it's about what you don't do. But I would say, start measuring your holiness by how much you love. And you will find out how holiness is working in your life. Some of us measure our holiness by the lack of, you know, hip-hop music that we listen to with a lot of dirty lyrics. Some of us measure holiness by how often we attend church. Some of us measure holiness by how often we read our Bible or how much we know about our Bible or how many city group conversations we can be involved in. But I would say, let's start at Urban Grace measuring our holiness by how much we love the brothers and sisters. Some of us right now will have to, as we partake of the table, confess our sin. And ask for forgiveness because we have not. We've been very unloving. Because people have frustrated us. Notice the text doesn't make an excuse for those people in your context who are frustrating to you. It doesn't say having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love except if someone's really annoying. There's no exceptions here. Wayne Grudem says, once you have begun to grow in holiness so that you have a, have a genuine affection for one another, make your love for each other earnest, deep, and strong. And so our challenge is to monitor how much we love God by how much we are loving people. So yes, we are given grace by Jesus Christ. He gives us a free gift. You don't earn your favor from Jesus by loving one another, but once you have been saved by Jesus, you are called to love one another. And you do that as a result of His love. You know how this gets so much easier? And this is where we close. The closer you are to the love of Jesus Christ for you, the easier it will be for you to love others. If you take a careful look at your story and you see how many times Jesus has put up with your junk, you will begin to be able to put up with someone else's junk. When you see how much Jesus has forgiven you in spite of the fact that he warned you, sent people to tell you, you've done this 755 times, same sin every day, he's still forgiving you, You can maybe overlook that person who every time they come into the office, they do this and this and this. Every time they come into church, they do this and this and this. I'm not saying it doesn't annoy us. I'm not saying it doesn't even bother us. But I am saying the call is to say, yes, in spite of this, I will love. I will show affection. I will treat them as equals. I will not judge them. I will not tell them in a way that's harsh. It's usually one of the ways that I can find out how I'm growing in holiness. It's not by my Bible reading. It's by my, the harshness of my words. And so we need to think about this. I know this is Thanksgiving Sunday. We're really glad if you're a visitor. Maybe this was God's way of giving you that word as well. But every week we spend some time, and here's what we do. We take a family meal together. 
This is what Jesus gave to us to do this. He said, every time you gather together in my name and you do this, I want you to remember my death and resurrection. So we took that seriously and we said, okay, well, we're going to celebrate it every week when we get together. And so if you're a regular at Urban Grace, you know this. You know what this is about. But here's what I say. Remember that this is not an individual meal. This is a family meal. And that you are not simply called to an idea of being a Christian. You are called to a church. You are called to a community. You're called to love actual people. And so I want you to take a strong, long look at what Jesus has done for you. Let me repeat it again. If you don't know what Jesus has done for you, this is what he has done for you. 2,000 years ago, he came, he humbled himself. He came in the form of a baby, born of a virgin in a miraculous way. He lived his life perfectly, sinlessly. He then died a death that he shouldn't have died. He was punished for things that he did not do in a way that he did not deserve. And he did it because he knew that a righteous God needed to pay the penalty for sin. So God, being the good, righteous, loving God that he is, said, I will make sure that this sin goes punished. Some of you have confusions about this. Until something happens in your life where you want sin punished. Have you noticed how outside of the courthouse, whenever there is someone who comes out and they've run someone over in a drunk driving accident or killed somebody in a drunk driving accident, or they've, they, they've, they've murdered someone. Remember that guy in Edmonton that murdered three people? Do you know what they said after they came out of the courthouse? I hope that guy gets hanged. I wish we could hang people. You know why they said that? Because they want justice to happen. They want our government to be a good judge. And that's exactly what God is. He's a good judge who said, I cannot simply look the other way on this sin. I have to punish it. He said, but I don't want to punish these people, and so I'll just punish my son, and he'll face my wrath. And if you believe that that sacrifice paid the price, I will let you have everything that he earned. I know, that's a big loophole. You're like, well, what? This doesn't make sense. That's why it's called grace. That's why it's called good news. And all you have to do to receive everything that Jesus Christ lived on this earth to earn is believe in him as God. That's it. It should simply astound you at times. It should cause you to think, why me? It should cause you to think, but does God know everything in my life? It should cause you to think, I don't deserve this in any way. It should cause you to think, is there anything that I can do for him? It should cause you to think all of these things. And God says, no, there's nothing you can do for me. I have done everything for you. Now, I'm going to tell you some things. Live like this. If you believe that, friends, I want you to take of this with a smile on your face because this is your meal. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we don't want you to partake of this. Do you know why? Because that means that you don't believe it. And we don't want you to lie about what you believe.
we're adults here. We don't want you to pretend. We don't want you to say, well, that's, you know, I'll just take and pretend and force my... Don't do that. It's not worth it. You're not fooling anyone. You may fool people here, but you're not fooling Jesus. And so just abstain. Not because we don't want you to partake. What actually we would love for you to do is to make that decision and say, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. It's that simple. I believe what's next. If you can say that and you believe that, then come and partake of the family meal.